Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Peter Marks and um, I'm the sort of chair for this evening. Um, So welcome to tonight's uh, talk on why surveillance capitalism has crept up on us. I'm currently chair of the Writing Studies uh, Department at the University of Sydney, and I'm also a professor of English literature at the university, and my interest in surveillance is primarily in the representation of surveillance in literature and film especially, uh, and with particular emphasis on utopias and dystopias. And I'm running a course on that right now, so this is particularly germane for me. So my main job, as I say, at this session is to be chair to introduce uh, our main speaker, one of the world's foremost thinkers and writers on surveillance, Professor David Lyon, and to introduce the third person uh, and the troika of people who will be talking tonight, uh, Dr. Benedetta Bravini, and I'll introduce her later on. So at this point, uh, my main task is to introduce uh, our key speaker for this evening, who is undoubtedly one of the world's um, eminent authorities on surveillance in its many guises. And I think that's one of the fascinations of, of reading David's work over many, many years. David is the, comes from or is a professor at Queen's University in Ontario in Canada. He's the Queen's Research Chair of Surveillance Studies, and he's also the director of the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's. And at this stage, it would be entirely appropriate for me simply to read through a list of his publications. Um, But being a rather simple soul, and being, because of my interest in literature, uh, a person of the book, uh, of the physical book, um, I actually brought along um, a bundle of books by David Lyon that are in my office, that were in my office. And I I just want to run through them quickly to give you a sense of the scope of his writing. This is not the entirety of the work that he's done, um, but the breadth of the work. Uh, And, you know, I've read these again and again over many years. So this is, uh, in 1994, The Electronic Eye, The Rise of Surveillance Society. And I think that idea of an emerging surveillance society back in the 90s uh, was something that David was at the the cutting edge of. 2001, Surveillance Society. This is monitoring everyday life. The idea that our everyday life, rather than simply the kind of top-down model of uh, police work, et cetera, et cetera, that that surveillance had broadened out uh, to everyday life. Surveillance after September 11th, fairly obviously a key moment in the development of surveillance practices, laws, responses. Surveillance studies, an overview, where surveillance studies starts to become, it sees itself as as an academic field. David was at the cutting edge of that. 2009, identifying citizens, identity cards as surveillance, another element. This is a a book that he edited on surveillance and control in Israel-Palestine, so looking at particular surveillance in a particular zone, a particular area. 2015, surveillance after Snowden, after Edward Snowden's uh, revelations. And his most recent book, 2018, The Culture of Surveillance, um, 
where he moved from the notion that surveillance is something that we endure to something we engage in, rather than see it as something done to us. It's something we also do ourselves, and I think that will be part of what um, he'll be talking about this evening. Now, that, this leaves out David's work with Sigmund Bauman, the, the uh, renowned sociologist, uh, a recent book of his or theirs called Liquid Surveillance. Um, and I guess this library of works over two and nearly three decades now um, speaks to the scope and reach and change in surveillance in our own society over a relatively short period of time. Um, but also the ways in which thinkers like David have tried to conceptualize surveillance as it morphs, as it develops from the 20th into the 21st century and into our future. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sure that this is what he's going to give us a sense of tonight. So could you please welcome, give a big welcome to Professor David Lyon. Okay. So the title that I uh, agreed to speak on tonight is Why Surveillance Capitalism Has Crept Up On Us. I, I am going to have a uh, subtitle in there, which is How Surveillance Culture Might Help. And um, that is where I want to go. An international scandal involving Facebook exploded in 2018. A political consulting company, Cambridge Analytica, that specializes in influencing voters obtained access to personal data from 87 million American Facebook users. Cambridge University social psychologist, somebody called Alexander Kogan, built an app to harvest data from those unwitting Facebook users. They were asked to take a survey from which psychological profiles were constructed, intended to predict their behavior. The users were unaware that the uh, data would gain access to their friends or that this other company, Cambridge Analytica, was involved. So 27, 000, sorry, 270,000 Americans took that survey, which enabled uh, both Kogan and his colleague, Alexander Nix, to develop a model which would predict the personalities of all adult uh, US citizens which was then passed to Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica uh, worked for Ted Cruz and then for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election campaign. Uh, Steve Bannon, Trump's ill-fated chief strategist, was on Cambridge Analytica's board. Robert and Rebecca uh, Mercer, Republican Party supporters, backed Cambridge Analytica financially. You're getting the picture, I guess. As for Facebook users, they were unaware that their data uh, was, and, and, and the data from their friends were being used for these purposes. The news about these activities didn't break until last year. I have one here. Uh, when a Canadian, Chris Wiley, who once directed research at Cambridge Analytica, turned whistleblower and informed the Guardian newspaper. And this prompted government hearings in the UK, USA, featuring uh, Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, among others, and in Canada in April 2018. And it generated a storm of outrage uh, and interest in Facebook's activities, particularly over the privacy of users' data. 
Zuckerberg was not known for saying much about privacy, and uh, until last night, he had never made such a long statement as he made yesterday. It, the, the idea of privacy had repeatedly been a matter of controversy, however, within uh, Facebook virtually since it was founded. A delete Facebook hashtag appeared, attracting much attention, and inquiries about how to remove oneself from Facebook um, grew rapidly, especially in the UK and in Canada. And all this represents a new departure for surveillance, and especially for studies of surveillance, something that has been simmering under the surface for some time, but finds concrete expression in that 2018 Facebook scandal. Firstly, this counts as surveillance, that is to say what Facebook and other platforms like it do, it counts as surveillance because personal data collection is involved, and analysis of those data, and it's for the purposes of management or control. And that would work as uh, any police or intelligence definition of surveillance as well. Data are decidedly significant, both for uh, platform, uh, platforms themselves and for their users. And behind this, secondly, the internet is a surveillance space that is inherently fluid, liquid. Such liquidity tends to blur boundaries, flowing across previously assumed activities and categories. For some time, for instance, the categories online and offline have seemed less and less salient to how people actually spend their daily lives. Much of life is in fact lived on the internet in almost constant contact with or finding out about others who are not present. The latter category is especially interesting because not only do people encounter and experience surveillance, um, they also engage with it. This engaging can be thought of as social surveillance, for example, which I think of as an aspect of surveillance culture. The internet itself is a surveillance space that smudges the distinctions between monitoring and tracking activities of security agencies, police, corporate marketers, and advertisers on the one hand, and the surveillance initiatives of everyday life on the other. It's hard to discover what security agencies, police, and corporate markers do because of their uh, relative degrees of secrecy. But everyday surveillance is not so well researched yet either, though that is changing. Finding out about others, or social surveillance, has many faces, from the relatively benign searches for classmates or potential romantic partners, to surveillance of groups and individuals that some wish to name and shame through forms of digital vigilantism. Surveillance data are thus a key to the functioning of the internet as it is currently constituted. Surveillance is unavoidable. The data make possible many kinds of activities, such as those that become visible in the public scandals, like the one that I've been talking about. But it's ambiguous. The internet, including surveillance data, also facilitates debates over surveillance activities and over data themselves, thus also becoming an intrinsic uh, dimension of debates over surveillance and of the internet itself, of course. And these complex interrelations between surveillance 
that characterize large global corporations and surveillance involving the mundane activities of everyday life that now have to be explored if contemporary kinds of surveillance are to be understood. So, painting with this broad brush, I'm going to frame what I have to say in terms of these two very wide-ranging concepts, surveillance capitalism, surveillance culture. Both depend on data, but in different ways and with different consequences. Surveillance capitalism is the source of the systems that enable many aspects of surveillance culture. And at present, much that counts as surveillance culture is supportive of surveillance capitalism. But, and I want to say this right at the start, this is not inevitable, as is evident already from what I've said about the Facebook scandal of 2018. The conditions of possibility, surveillance data in this case, do not produce predetermined outcomes. So let me say something about surveillance capitalism first of all. To focus on surveillance capitalism is to grasp the immense power and profitability of personal data and to see why not only corporations but government departments, healthcare uh, systems, educational establishments, urban planners and of course policing and security initiatives are so eager to follow the so-called big data bandwagon into new realms of user transparency, efficiency, productivity and power. Facebook is a prime example of a surveillance capitalism corporation. It makes user data into a commodity for sale to other companies. Critical to its success was the invention of Facebook friends, from whose data assumptions can be made about whole groups and population segments with similar characteristics. Basically, your friends betray you on Facebook. Similarly, the like button innovation enabled users to approve and rate each other's contributions, to engage in impression management and identity construction, and crucially, also permitted Facebook to track users as they move from site to site, thus accruing more and more data. Facebook connects users with other acquaintances, family members, groups, and so on as heavily advertised from the outset. But it also connects users with unseen others, data brokers, developers, advertisers, political campaigners, and snake oil vendors that pay Facebook for these valuable connections. This is Facebook's business model. People are attracted to the site the neurosciences and high-level psychology uh, play a very important role here. And uh, they're also encouraged to spend more and more time there so that their attention, their interests, the details of their daily lives may be sold to the highest bidders. As data are donated, often unwittingly, by users, so they are used to profile those users and their friends and acquaintances including those with no Facebook account. And as with all social media, these interactions with the site are the very source of value. And their aim is not merely to predict, but also to try to reshape lives and lifestyles. Now Shoshana's new 
doorstop book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, explores this phenomenon at length. And I mean length. It's less than 700 pages, but gets up there. Zuboff describes Google's secret of profitability as, quote, unilateral surveillance and behavior modification. Like Cambridge Analytica, it aims to predict behavior in hope of modifying behavior. It sells real-time access to everyday life, aiming to change behaviors at scale through data capture, analysis, and reward and punishment. Computer mediation means, uh, for Zuboff, and I quote, that the world is visible, knowable, and shareable in new ways. Corporations gain access to everyday life, and today this exempts almost no one in societies that are dependent on digital infrastructures. And that really is most societies around the world. There are very strong global south implications of all that I have to say, uh, but I'm mainly talking about global north this evening. But there is no tr transaction with users and consumers. No transaction at all. Straight extraction is all that occurs. And Zuboff makes some very good uh, points about this. The trading data is entirely between large corporations. Then Shoshana Zuboff concludes that this adds up to a new logic of capital accumulation. It's a very bold claim, and of course, the uh, weight of this book, and I mean the intellectual weight of this book, means that it is one that is already attracting considerable attention and, of course, critique. But uh, I value it and I welcome it because it is raising these critical questions. That capital accumulation logic, she says, is characterized by three things, digital dependence, indifference, and neoliberalism. It uses prediction to eliminate uncertainty, but also, critically, undermines social trust, cohesion, familial bonding, binding contracts, and promises. And she warns that it finally severs those frail and frayed uh, relationships between capitalist uh, corporations and their employees, their consumers, and their users. Google was the very first to use analytics to increase the relevance of ads to users, but also, crucially, to repurpose that growing cache of behavioral data, especially after the advent of social media. The term data exhaust that was originally given for these metadata, the data about data, really downplays the reality of what is now being captured from users. But in reality, it is what Zuboff calls behavioral surplus. And that surplus leads to what she calls accumulation by dispossession. And she argues that as it occurs, even human rights are erased, endangering both dignity and democracy. So with all those things in mind, does this mean that we should just succumb to complacencies or, or cynicism? What can anyone do in the face of such accelerating logics of accumulation and data dependence? The corporations involved are some of the most highest, highly valued on the planet, and the impunity within, within which they operate is totally staggering. Yet to ask only such questions is to 
ignore those who experience surveillance in everyday life and whose responses are, in fact, far from monochrome. Zuboff talks about anticipatory conformity, and that is indeed, for many, uh, part of the response. Much of today's every world, everyday world of surveillance shadows surveillance capitalism. We do surveillance on others using social media or on ourselves using self-tracking wearables. But there's also evidence, not only of such dominant influences, but also of residual or emergent approaches in which older outlooks guide surveillance imaginaries and practices, or newer ones form querying or resistance to surveillance. And to understand these, we need to think a little bit about surveillance culture. Now, when I started studying surveillance, researching surveillance more than 30 years ago, as Peter pointed out, the key issues were government, the surveillance state, policing and workplace surveillance, often crystallized in the iconic video or CCTV camera. Facilitated by the US military industrial complex, computerization was well underway, and this affected each of the three areas, plus also the use of credit cards, which began in the 1960s. Surveillance practices became prominent in the area of consumption. But in those days, they were experienced in tangible ways. Junk mail came through envelopes, uh, came in envelopes through letterboxes, targeting more and more specific groups of consumers as they did so. Surveillance was spilling over the rims of its previous containers, and talk of surveillance society began in the mid-1980s and took hold by the turn of the century as these practices became more pervasive. But by the first decade of the 21st century, things were changing once again. The so-called dot-com companies were faring badly. New opportunities appeared following 9-11, as security industries went into a higher gear, and soon afterwards, as social networking developed from MySpace and Friendster into the social media that are commonplace today. Ordinary citizens after 9-11 were invited to say something about perceived security breaches, to report unusual events or objects, or to tip off authorities on the one hand, and on the other, to check up on each other in more direct ways, and even to conduct private investigation into strangers' lives. A new culture of surveillance was taking shape, parallel in many ways to the development of surveillance capitalism. So what do I mean by surveillance culture, then? On the one hand, it's our experience of surveillance in everyday life. As people negotiate ubiquitous cameras in public and private spaces, pass through security airport, uh, areas such as those in airports, encounter embedded surveillance in buildings, vehicles, and proliferating devices, each of which collects stores, transmits, analyzes, and acts on those data. And on the other hand, surveillance culture exists where people play a more active role in surveillance. This may be changing personal practices in watched spaces, such as streets, malls, or airports, or in new modes of checking up on the lives of others known and unknown using conventional search engines, or more likely through social media. 
Or, of course, checking ourselves, self-surveillance, using health apps or Fitbits. Whether we think of the experiences of surveillance or engagement with surveillance, they take place within uh, a realm of what I think of as everyday surveillance imaginaries and practices. What I mean by imaginaries is the way that we see the world of surveillance and our part in it, which includes a sense of how things should be and sets, sets off warning bells when something seems not quite right. We may expect, for instance, to have our bags checked at the airport and perhaps to enter a biometric or have our hands swabbed. Equally, we anticipate that certain online sites will re require agreement with terms of service, or that the door will remain locked if our entry card isn't up to date, or that the car won't start if our blood alcohol level is too high. Mundane surveillance practices work with these imaginaries, such that people learn how best to get through security without delay. People who think they may be thought of as Middle Eastern or Muslim in uh, primarily white societies will plan this well in advance. One of my PhD students did a fascinating and totally moving uh, dissertation on exactly this process. Others will click acquiescence with the terms of service regardless of whether or not they were actually read or follow someone else through the security door rather than use the appropriate entry card. In the world of social media, people are most likely to check up on others known to them. And although about a third of American, British, or Canadian citizens will check up on strangers, uh, sorry, they will check up on strangers, despite the fact that such snoopers believe that these people would be annoyed, upset, or embarrassed if they knew. And that was from an old survey. That was about eight or nine years ago now. Uh, I suspect things have changed since then. Of course, surveillance culture is volatile. It is uh, complicated. And it's heterogeneous. I'm not suggesting for a moment there is one thing. But I'd use the one term uh, inclusively to include all these things. For example, I may share my... Uh, my, my uh, Considerations can start with a notion like privacy. I may share my healthcare information with my doctor and some family members, but be much more circumspect if I think that an insurance or pharmaceutical company may see it. Or some of us may think beyond privacy. Many judge surveillance practices, uh, not necessarily recognizing them as surveillance, according to criteria not of privacy, but of fairness and act accordingly. Think, for example, of differential pricing. Again, in the world of uh, air travel, you've probably discovered that uh, it's hard to find two people who pay the same price for the flight. Why is that? Well, differential pricing has everything to do with the sorting of customers, of, of uh, consumers, that uh, is done through the kinds of surveillance that I've been talking about under the surveillance capitalism title. Much research has demonstrated that surveillance always involves gathering data that enables populations to be categorized so that different groups can be treated differently. This is social sorting and today depends on very complex social scoring that informs the sorting. Uh, 
Those of you who watch any of Black Mirror will recall the nosedive episode. That's where you see scoring at its scariest. Uh, my wife Sue won't even watch that stuff. Dominant forms, especially those using so-called big data, tend to reinforce already existing disadvantage and marginalization. A recent report concluded thus, marginal populations may be subjected to increased surveillance by both public and private actors. If predictive algorithms deem them to be at risk, they may be labeled as such and further marginalized. So the exclusionary uh, impetus of surveillance as social sorting is thus augmented among those who are already vulnerable in racialized, gendered, class-based, and other categories. But even this doesn't mean that the outcomes may always be taken for granted. In a culture of surveillance, for example, women on welfare will subvert surveillance in order to look after their children. Brown-skinned brown air travelers will perform for security in risk-reducing ways. Poorer people in the housing market will use real estate classifications to mitigate their position. Smartphone users will exchange SIM cards for different purposes. Surveillance practices are very commonplace these days and sometimes very creative as well. So what happens when surveillance culture meets surveillance capitalism? To speak of these two terms, of course, is an attempt to paint a big picture. Surveillance culture requires that common definitions of surveillance have to be stretched. Conventional definitions start from that operator, top-down perspective that sees surveillance as something that just happens to us whether negotiating airport security, walking down the street under cameras, or becoming aware that Instagram and WhatsApp on those smartphones means that personal identity, preferences, and whereabouts are known. But in fact, surveillance is also something that people now engage with in everyday life. Sending images of incidents to the police, installing home security systems, checking up on others, including strangers using Facebook or some other media platform. In everyday life, people contribute to a growing culture of surveillance. And I suggest that surveillance watching is increasingly becoming a way of life. Developments in surveillance culture occur in the same world as characterized by the political economic realities of surveillance capitalism, in which data extraction is profoundly implicated. That is, for example, as users go online to check Google, Facebook, or even as academics, ResearchGate, scraps of data are sucked up as a vacuum cleaner sucks away detritus from rugs or sofas. But this digital dust does not go to landfills. Someone, and Google was first, as I said, saw value in it, and it is now monetized to make millions. In other words, the surveillance culture has an intrinsic relationship with surveillance capitalism. What is it? The dominant aspects of surveillance culture often play into surveillance capitalism, facilitating and normalizing it. And by the same token, much of surveillance culture depends on surveillance capitalism for its very existence. But focusing only on the operator aspects, the vacuum cleaning, or on the complacent and compliant aspects of surveillance culture can easily produce a sense of hopelessness. 
the operators will insist that the technological changes shaping the digital era are really unstoppable and, not to be and that not to be data-driven is to miss out on efficiency and profitability. Or at least, they will say, that law and regulation will never catch up. And those comfortable with surveillance culture will say that it's uh, convenience and it's efficiency in making desired connections with others is worth any minor quibbles about civil liberties or privacy. So I ask again, can nothing be done? It's true that some shrug off the sucking up of data as something inconsequential. Who cares? But beyond such dominant modes are residual approaches that question users donating data with no apparent return and emergent modes that try to resist by arguing for new forms of regulation or by using technical means in digital judo moves. But remember this. In the mid-20th century, some early studies of TV feared the growth of propaganda and the negative impact of the new medium that cultivated viewers in specific ways. But more subtle studies in the late 1970s and early 1980s showed just how much there were critical viewers of the TV medium. And they were reading the TV news in particular ways and interpreting TV shows in myriad different ways. And arguably, I think that something uh, very similar is happening now in relation to the digital and to surveillance. As Anganishan and Evelyn Ruppert observe, while some internet users see themselves as simply subject to power, others believe that they can make a difference. They are subjects of power. Both submissive and subversive behaviors are seen in online life. Our very relationship as citizens in digitally dependent societies uh, is now mediated by the internet and by data. And as digital citizens make claims about those data, rights claims, they do so prompted and provoked by, in, into self-governing and attempt to uh, exert political influence through such claims. I'm going to draw to a close now, but I just want to propose three components of uh, a possible response to what I've been saying. We need three things, indignation, imagination, and uh, insight. For a meaningful data politics to emerge, and I think data politics is what needs to emerge, indignation is vital. Given the manifest disrespect for dignity and fairness suffered under surveillance capitalism, indignation should rightly feature as an aspect of any such social analysis. Surveillance capitalism and surveillance culture simply cannot be studied dispassionately. They affect really important things, people's sense of identity, how people present and see themselves, their life chances, how doors are opened and closed, depending on the consumer and other categories in which today everyone is placed, and democratic participation, including whether or not our election vote makes a difference. All these things are tremendously important, and I think we should come to them with indignation as well as an attempt at uh, full understanding. Secondly, imagination. Indignation is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to understand the strategies of surveillance capitalism. Well, in the first place, we have to name it, either as surveillance capitalism or, or something like that, to really get to what's going on. 
And having named it, we need to uh, look beyond and, and let our imaginations expand. We need to think beyond the box. The commonest metaphors in surveillance today come from where? Well, they come from Big Brother, now largely rendered obsolete. In details, but not in humane thrust by the rise of surveillance capitalism. This doesn't mean either that Orwell is irrelevant or that other metamors, metaphors and memes are unavailable. None, none of it. They may be found, for example, in contemporary utopian and dystopian fiction. Uh, for example, of The Circle and of the TV series uh, Black Mirror, which I already mentioned. Why The Circle? Well, in this novel by uh, Dave Eggers, all the key aspects of surveillance capitalism and surveillance culture are writ large. And I say read the novel. I'm afraid the movie is... Th read the novel. <laughs> May, the protagonist, is a 20-something uh, new employee at the Silicon Valley internet company that has bought out all the others. So Amazon, Facebook, Google, that whole lot are no longer... It's all in the circle. And May is sucked into this totally transparent environment where everything depends on her scores and her ranking for participation. Sharing is caring, they say, in an Orwell mimicking slogan. But it's also one where the company believes that can govern better than, company, than governments can. We can all relax knowing that these billionaire young white males have algorithms for a peaceful, contented world. So let's attend carefully to how these new metaphors, like the ones in uh, Black Mirror, like the ones in The Circle, are being mobilized as a means of comprehending and acting in relation to surveillance. And then th thirdly, insight. I'm not prescribing ways forward. Uh, as much as proposing some open questions about where surveillance culture is heading and so how some emerging trends might channel it in fresh ways. But I do these things pleading for insight, which I believe is a product of wisdom regarding means and ends. Utopian thinkers Thinkers often uh, encourage us to peer well beyond the present and to connect future goals with present conditions. And one such admirable goal, in my view, is human flourishing. I suggest that beyond the uh, tactics and programs, uh, even in uh, what Zuckerberg promised yesterday, end-to-end -end, uh, encryption for our messaging, we should also consider what we really want to see, aiming for the good, aiming for the common good, aiming for human flourishing, is an admirable goal. And we can come back to that in discussion, but let, let me just leave you with those three. I think that as we begin to think about responses to what I've been trying to say, thinking about the matter of indignation, imagination, and insight should get us a long way. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And we will return to David a chance to talk uh, or interact with him later. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the, there are three of us uh, on stage after uh, this brief um, response from Dr. Benedetta Bravini,
who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney. Dr. Bravini is interested in media policy and media reform, the internet and social media, and the relationships between communications, uh, politics and economics. So I'd just like to bring her up and she will have a response and a, a short video. Thank you, Peter, for a lovely introduction, and thank you, David, for such an inspiring talk, but also for years, years of research and findings on surveillance and also on the cultural surveillance. Now, I, I thought that because I come to surveillance from a very different perspective, the perspective of communication studies, I thought I, uh, I could focus on um, something that actually um, you mentioned, obviously, in your talk. It's present in your book on surveillance capitalism. Um, but perhaps we can spend some time trying to understand um, the problem that I believe is one of the crucial issues of surveillance capitalism. And uh, I'm referring to the problem of concentration. Concentration of power, that is. Um, we know, and I think you made it very clear, that the current development of the digital world we are witnessing is dictated completely by data extractivism. That means collecting, storing our data and our attention, and then selling to advertisers or the highest bidders, sometimes to despotic governments as well. Um, I think that you made it very clear uh, by mentioning some of the scandals, such as the Cam Cambridge Analytica scandal. And uh, so, um, but not only Cambridge Analytica, I, would, um, uh, I was really surprised to read about uh, a great investigation by ProPublica, a very recent one, on um, um, you know, the apnea devices that are currently used in the US and what happened to the data they were collecting because they weren't just being sent to the manufacturers of these devices, they were also being sent to medical companies and therefore to insurers and uh, this has caused a major scandal as well. But I could keep talking of um, famous recent crisis of surveillance capitalism to a level that now we see books like the one by Zuboff that actually came out very recently and uh, um, from a clearly an economic, economic perspective, not a political economy perspective. So I think um, that um, it's important to understand the problem of concentration because we don't talk enough about it. And um, by concentration, I really don't mean just the concentration of economic power. Yes, I know we have a problem of digital giants that are currently um, showing um, such an incredible market capitalization, like the capitalization of Apple, for example, is just past $1 trillion. Amazon is worth $895 billion. Google, um, through the owner alphabet, was valued at roughly uh, $853 billion. And then we have Facebook at around five or nine billions. But I think there is more, and I think this emerges also from the, um, the talk um, that um, David has given, but also uh, from the book uh, by Zuboff, um, there is a problem of concentration of political power. And how are these global digital giants exerting and showing their political power? Well, we see, for example, the level of lobbying 
I have some data here um, that can illuminate uh, this problem of concentration of political power. So Google spent around $21.2 million on lobbying. Amazon spent around $14.2 million of dollars, and Facebook around $12.6 million. Just imagine what could be done, for example, to save public service journalism, public interest journalism, if this money was, instead of being spent of lobbying, was spent on investigative reporting, for example, which is something that communication scholars like me and communication reformers have been arguing for quite a while now. But I thought that I should focus more on another form of power that doesn't get discussed as often, but I think it's equally problematic and incredibly relevant, which is the ideological power. Um, because tech giants are progressively turning unquestionable questions in common sense. So what happens when these global digital giants are keeping repeating things that we almost don't criticize and take for granted? Well, if we keep repeating the same logic and the same discourses, they become hegemonic and then it becomes very difficult to challenge them. So in other words, the ideological power of global media giants is really capable of determining partially what people believe, what people believe standards of life should be, how to act as a consumer rather than a citizen, and also what, for example, stages of surveillance or of privacy are acceptable and what are not. And I want to give you just a few examples of these claims and see if they sound familiar at all to you. Um, the usual one, one of my favorites, and uh, um, that I normally use to start a lecture on surveillance in my classes, like the typical argument of, I have nothing to hide, therefore I have nothing to worry. I'm sure that you've heard this millions of times, so that would be the first. The second, the fact that current economic practices and current ubiquitous practices of surveillance are inevitable. And, you know, David mentioned this um, in his talk, um, but they're not only inevitable, but they are triggered and determined by technology. How many times have you heard this as well? But also, like, tech progress, technological progress, cannot be stopped. So if you're stopping technological progress, you really don't understand what um, civilization is about and modernization is about. And fourthly, um, the fact that technology per se, technology alone, is able to fix all the problems. So I just think that um, when I was uh, reading the recent book uh, by David and then I was thinking about the talk and what I could bring that is something that maybe has not been discussed enough, I came across a very interesting ad that was actually shown just a week ago during the Oscar night. And uh, let's not forget that television is an incredible um, tool for propaganda and for spreading hegemonic thoughts as well, and it still is, considering that the Oscar night had something like 40 million viewers. Um, and I thought that I would like to show it to you to see, actually, what I'm talking about when I refer to too much concentration of ideological power. This was an ad that uh, was produced by IBM, IBM and showed 
are the Oscar night. that probably this video made you feel quite comfortable because in a way we have technology on our side, we have tech company that while acknowledging, and I think that this is great to see, acknowledging the crisis that we're facing at the moment, the problem with inequalities, for example, but the message is still the same. The message, the message is that technology will fix it. So I think uh, that I made my point in showing the relevance of hegemonic discourses around technology and uh, also around surveillance. But what is really dangerous and uh, is something that we should uh, reject um, is this idea of the agency of technology, this idea that technology can fix it all and technology can save us. And to use one of my favorite quotes of Raymond Williams that I'm, I think that also David is a fan of, technology is always, in a full sense, social. So, thank you very much. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Um, well, actually, if I could, if I could just finish on a, on an Orwellian note. Uh, Orwell was asked by a, uh, a reader whether he thought 1984 would happen, and he said, no, uh, it, we have to work against it. It's up to you. And I think, in a sense, that's what David is suggesting here, that we don't just go out of the room and return to our daily lives. We do something. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.